Well, open your Bibles back up to Ephesians. You know, by the time we finish with the book of Ephesians, one of two things will happen. Either the Lord will return, or your Bible will have a permanent crease in the book of Ephesians, and it will naturally fall open there. And there could be a lot worse things, my friends, than that, to be sure. So we are back into Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, chapter 2, looking, uh, beginning here and over the next few weeks, actually, uh, beginning in verse 11 and carrying it through to the end of the chapter, 11 to 22, is really one large section, and so we're going to look at it and deal with it in, a, in some multi-parts, and I've entitled the message, Overcoming Ethnic Tensions, Overcoming ethnic tensions. And I'm probably not telling you anything you don't already know, but we are living in a world of rising ethnic tensions. There are very few countries on the face of the planet that are immune to sort of the slow boil of anger and suspicion and hostility that is embedded into the societal fabric of virtually every single country. I think in contemplating this that there are few things that better demonstrate the depravity and the alienation from God that mankind has experienced in the fall of Adam than the topics of racism and ethnic violence. And conversely, I don't think that anything demonstrates the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ more than multi-ethnic churches that join together to worship together and to work together for the propagation of the gospel from one end of the planet to the other. So this is a very, very pertinent topic. Jesus said in John 13 and verse 35 of the night in which he was betrayed, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There is something very, very compelling about the love of Christ being expressed in crossing over the ethnic barriers and divides that, uh, that divide up this world so deeply and so painfully. Really, ever since the Tower of Babel, when God judged mankind's arrogance and rebellion there and confused the languages, humanity has been divided one from another and suspicious of one another. People are just not like us, right? They're just not like us. And there are all kinds of things that divide people one from another. For example, food and dietary preferences can be very big divisions between people. Taboos associated with food, the ability to to eat certain kinds of food or not be able to eat certain kinds of food, create all kinds of barriers that separate people. And yet Jesus said that it's not that what goes into a man's mouth that defiles him, right? But it's what comes out of his heart. And Mark tells us in Mark 7 and verse 19 that there, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. All foods clean. And yet, 
all of us have some very strong preferences when it comes to food. And if we're not careful, those preferences can actually become barriers. Certainly cultural customs and expectations vary across ethnic groups, and they can become barriers or things that divide us. Language difficulties are certainly barriers and can be insurmountable barriers when you attempt to try to communicate with somebody and you just can't make yourself clear. And so you do the only logical thing, which is to say it again louder, right? Because the problem is clearly one of volume. And yet that's how we approach it. That's how we approach it. Certainly political parties and affiliations can deeply divide people. Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians and whatever other labels get applied. and can create very deep divisions. Sports affiliations and teams can actually divide people. It's the grace of God in in a demonstration, I just have to say this because he caught my eye, that Mike Harris and I are, are one in the Lord and brothers in love, even though he is a wretched Yankees fan. <laughs> and they beat us last night. But I love you, brother. But these things do divide. They do divide in all seriousness. Certainly inflammatory rhetoric and stereotypes lead to divisions. They squelch dialogue. They make rational exchange of ideas impossible. And when you think the other person is just insane or crazy or whatever, then there's no point in trying to talk to them. So we isolate into our own groups and talk to ourselves in an echo chamber. Past personal slights and wounds create barriers. Hurtful childhood memories cause us at times to attach certain negative feelings towards entire people groups because of the actions of one particular individual. And this can lead to generational hostilities where there are, there are multiple generations where there is hostility between two ethnic groups, and, and people really, probably, if you push them, couldn't exactly tell you what it's all about. It's just they're not us. They're not like us. I mean, certainly there could be no clearer illustration of this than to look at the Middle East, right? Where those divisions go back millennia. The hatred is deep. There is the lust for revenge, the inability and unwillingness to turn the other cheek in the face of personal slight. There are the prideful feelings of superiority, whether it be intellectual superiority or or physical superiority or, or even cultural superiority. We're better than them, whoever the them is, right? Physical appearance. This one's really irrational, right? The color of one's skin becomes a means by which people divide themselves. And and what's so crazy about this is, is that the color of the skin is produced by a pigment that we all have. There is only one. 
question is, how much of it? Always amazes me that uh, people of, of fair skin spend the summer trying to become dark. Very, very interesting. There are the irrational suspicions that we all have. Walk up to a group of people, and just as you arrive, if they all burst out laughing, how do you feel? Are you sure they're laughing at you? When they speak in a language you can't understand in your presence, you're positive. They're talking about you. Listen, the early church dealt with all of this. All of these things and more. Because the early church had to deal with the ancient hostility and separation between Jew and Gentile, and it never has been any deeper than that. And as God's apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle Paul was at the forefront of explaining to the new converts the essential nature of ethnic unity in the church because it is the direct product of the transformation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This was, in a sense, Paul's life mission. And it occupies a significant piece of his writings. He was constantly dealing with the issue of unity in the body of Christ, and in particular, Jew-Gentile unity. Because if that one can be resolved, then all the other ones that I mentioned before really just pale in comparison and drop to the wayside. For example, turn with me, and we'll just do this really quickly, but turn with me to Romans chapter 11, where Paul there in 9, 10, and 11 is dealing with the question of Israel, a question that is raised by the the incredible statements he makes at the end of chapter 8, where he's convinced that nothing can separate him from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, and the natural question that would certainly follow is that if If God couldn't hang on to Israel, how can I know that he'll hang on to me? And so Paul picks up and addresses that topic in chapters 9, 10, and 11. But in particular in chapter 11, in picking it up in verse 17, he's dealing now with the Gentile believers there in Rome. And he says, verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off, and he's talking here about the Jewish people, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, and that rich root there is the Abrahamic covenant, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. I don't believe I will ever forget the first time that I had the opportunity to to meet a certain family that was seeking to go to Israel and to share the love of God there among the Jewish people and trying to raise support to be able to do that and The story that was conveyed to me, this individual was at a southern church, small southern 
church, a Baptist church, not a Southern Baptist, but a Baptist church in the South. And after his presentation, this old deacon came up to him and, and said to him, Brother so-and-so, uh, them Jews had their chance. And uh, what, a, what an expression of the very arrogance which Paul condemns here in Romans chapter 11. You see further in this uh, same letter over in chapter 15, verses 5 and 6, where really chapter 14 and the first part here of chapter 15, Paul is dealing with a very, very important issue of how to handle freedom in the church. And the fronting issue here is about meat or or no meat, basically. The exercise of one's freedom to consume meat or not to consume meat, and here uh, I think idol uh, worship is involved, and you know the meat was bought at a meat market, and uh, it's likely that it was previously offered uh, to idols and so forth. And so there was a, the, the, some, and, and basically the Gentiles understood that there was freedom in this, and some of the Jewish believers with, with a very tight scruples were just convinced they couldn't do this. But Paul says, basically here in 14 and the first part of 15, and in verses 5 and 6 in particular, he says, don't let your freedom divide you. He says, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's about unity and it's bigger than meat or non-meat, or any of the issues that today can divide people. You see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. As I say, it's, it's really all through Paul's writings. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13, where there Paul's talking in, in about unity and a church that is you know, highly ununified, very divisive. And there he speaks about and uses the metaphor of the human body. And he says, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 12, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit." That is, that we were immersed in the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit of God, and there is only one body. Over in 2 Corinthians, and I'm just picking a few. There are many more that we could look at, but 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, you'll remember there that that is uh, a section uh, where Paul is, is holding up the Macedonian believers to the Corinthians as an example of generosity in the midst of poverty in the collection of a relief fund that Paul is going to take to Jerusalem to provide for the Jewish believers there that are, that are in famine conditions. And this is very, very important to the Apostle Paul. And the reason it's so important to him that the Gentile churches help out the Jewish believers is because... Uh, These Jewish believers there in Jerusalem and Palestine have been the very hotbed of opposition to the Pauline mission to the Gentiles. So this is a very significant expression, really, of Paul's theology 
in a shoe leather form that the Gentiles will, will sacrifice and deny themselves in order to provide financial relief to these other Jewish believers who have not been very nice to them at all. And so it really is an enfleshment of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kind of transformation that it makes. And so Paul is, is very, very concerned about such things. We can see over in Galatians chapter 2 where Paul rebukes Peter. Chapter 2 and verse 11, but when Cephas came from to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all. Can you imagine that? That must have been intense. If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles, knowing, nevertheless knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. This is huge. It is, a, it is an incredible breach to, to separate and refuse table fellowship when we have been put together by the Spirit of God in the one body of Jesus Christ. So Paul will go on to say in chapter 3 and verse 28 of the same letter, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That is, that there are, there are no earthly priorities in the sight of God. The, the, the ground at the foot of the cross is entirely level. No one gets a leg up. Colossians, another one, Colossians 3, where Paul says there in verses 10 and 11, he says, Having put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So it's all through his writings, because this is a big deal. This is a big deal. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. Now, Paul writes this letter, and he, he begins with the doctrine of salvation and, and, and basically individual salvation, right? Chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, talks about, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, and so forth. So he, 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 he plays out, spills out for them the doctrine of individual salvation by the sovereign grace of God, Rolling into chapter 2 and the beginning part of it and, and how, how hopelessly lost people are, Jew or Gentile, and need to be born again, right? They need to be made alive from the dead, which can only be done in union with Christ. But then he turns, beginning here in verse 11, where we take it up this morning. 
There was a, there was a major turning point here in the letter. And this, this turning point takes us to, I think, the most comprehensive treatment of the doctrine of the church in terms of, its, of it crushing ethnic barriers that can be found anywhere in the New Testament. This is huge. And this is the heart, really, I think, of the, of the Pauline ministry. This is, this is his heart. It is to take the gospel to the Gentiles, not for the purpose of having two churches, a Jewish church and a Gentile church, but for the purpose of demonstrating by bringing together the two ancient enemies into, into this one loving, working family of God, the illustration of what the gospel really is all about, that it transcends everything. It changes everything. Nothing remains untouched by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and particularly any kind of ethnic barriers that are erected by sin. Paul's very commission in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, where the Lord speaks to Ananias to tell him to go and speak to Paul and baptize him and so forth, And God says, he, that is Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. This is Paul's mission. This is what he was willing to suffer for, to see Jew and Gentile together in one body. So here we are, beginning in verse 11, running through the end of the chapter and And it doesn't just end there because the implications of it are called out even further in chapter 3, but that's for the future. But in the passage, Paul shows here how Christ permanently overcomes ethnic tensions. How Christ permanently overcomes ethnic tensions through the gospel of grace. So that we might battle against such barriers here at Foothill. We should not think we're immune from this. We should not think that somehow we are immune to the very kinds of ethnic barriers that once tormented us in our life before Christ. So, as we dig in, I said we're not going to finish it all this morning, and looking at the clock, we'll see where we get to, but let's dig in first In verses 11 and 12, where Paul talks about the Gentiles' former plight. He sets up this doctrine, the importance of all of this, by by speaking about and actually elaborating on the, the, the former plight of the Gentile believers. And he reminds them, as he starts out here, that there was once a time when they were a very long way from God. Not just personally dead in their trespasses and sins. Much more than that, they were ethnically, if I can say it that way, far away from God. And as they reflect upon God's unmerited favor and blessing upon them that that they now enjoy, and they compare it to the hopelessness from which they were drawn, then they are motivated to praise God. And to extend their gra- the grace of God to the, to the fellow believers within the fellowship. So it has that practical outworking. If we, if we just get a grasp on where it is we've come from by the grace of God, then we will be much more gracious people ourselves. Furthermore, and I'll say it here, that, that implicit in this is a mandate to share this good news across all ethnic barriers. 
If the gospel overcomes ethnic barriers, then there is an absolute mandate that that gospel be taken to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, right? So the Christian faith is hopelessly, if I can use that word, and maybe that's a bad word, but, but it is, um, what's the word I'm wanting? It is, it is unchangeably evangelistic. Unchangeably evangelistic. It's, it's necessary because of what the gospel is. So Paul says, verse 11, Therefore remember, therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul reminds the Gentile readers here, that there was a time when Jew and Gentile were separated, and they were separated both surgically and they were separated theologically. They were separated surgically and they were separated theologically. Where he notice he says here, you, the Gentiles in the flesh. This is the surgical separation. Gentiles in the flesh. It, there is a real physical difference between Jew and Gentile, right? And the difference is, or was, circumcision. It was circumcision. Circumcision, right, that surgical procedure, right, the removal of the foreskin from the male sexual organ, was the sign of the covenant that God gave to Abraham for his descendants in Genesis 17. And it set Israel apart from humanity. It was the sign of the covenant. It was a sign of God's particular and exclusive relationship with Israel. And the very fact that Gentiles were not circumcised was evidence that they were estranged from God. And that estrangement could only be dealt with in one way, and that was by becoming a proselyte to the Jewish faith. They, they had to become Jewish. But they couldn't become all the way Jewish. They could take circumcision. And it would allow them to come much closer to the God of Israel, but there were still barriers because they weren't Jewish. And so they, they occupied this sort of second-class citizenship within the nation. Now this difference uh, between circumcision and, and uh, non-circumcision over, over the millennia, over the centuries, became an insurmountable barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles and the source of incredible Jewish derision for Gentiles. The Jews would, would see their circumcision, their surgical procedure, as the mark of God's favor upon them and their neighbor's lack of it as the sign that they were cut off from God. And we see it here, actually, in the way Paul speaks, because he uses the, the, the language of the Jewish people of his day. Notice here in verse 11, Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision. They were called by the Jew, their Jewish neighbors uncircumcision, literally foreskin. They were called foreskin. Hey, 
foreskin. Okay? That was a that was a that was a pretty derisive way to refer to people. First Samuel seventeen twenty six, you remember when Goliath comes out and challenges Israel and, and young David comes and says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine, right? To taunt the armies of the living God. So even by that time, it had become an insult, a a slander. Now this this derisive and dismissive language, Paul says, is used here, verse 11, by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. So so Paul is kind of getting behind this, and he's saying that the, that the, the Jews have this derisive term for the Gentiles, right? But just because they have had the surgical procedure, that doesn't really mean that they are close to God. They are the so-called circumcision because they've had, you know, the the surgery by human hand. That is, you know, they've been... uh, Be really careful how you talk here. They've... um, Pray. They... um, they have had the procedure for the removal, right? Okay, good. We got that. Man. But they are so-called. Because they are missing. They've got the surgical procedure, but what they are missing is the true nature of what circumcision was supposed to illustrate. It was never meant to be, hey, if you have this physical thing, then you're in with God. And if you don't have it, you're out with God. Circumcision was always to to stand in for the greater truth, which was the circumcision of the heart. I'm not going to take the time to trace it there for you, but you can check it on your own. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 16, and Deuteronomy 30 and chapter 6. Now that's that's the Mosaic law, right? That's the, that's the second giving of the law by Moses. And it's interesting there because in chapter 10 and verse 16, he says that they, the believer, or not believers, the Jewish people are to circumcise their own heart. And in chapter 30 and verse 6, uh, they're saying, it says there that God will need to circumcise their heart. But circumcision, the, the, the surgical procedure, was never meant to be the end of it. It was supposed to be the sign for the greater spiritual reality, which is the transformation of the human heart. Paul understood this. Paul understood this. And so while important to the Jew, the reality of the matter is that that surgery neither commends nor condemns a person before God. The presence of, of the surgery or the absence of the surgery does nothing to change one's spiritual standing before God. Paul makes that exceedingly clear in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. So Paul here in verse 11, he, he, he sort of dismisses now this, this formal barrier of circumcision, and he gets down to the real problem. The real problem for the Gentile readers. It wasn't their real problem in life is not just that they hadn't had a surgical procedure. Because if it was that simple, 
then in a matter of, you know, a short amount of time, one's relationship with God could be restored through the work of human hands. And Paul says, no, 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 it was way bigger than that, way more profound than that. They were distant from God. Not just distant because of their individual sin, but they were distant from God theologically because of the circumstances of their birth. Because of the circumstances of their birth. In other words, there was nothing they could do about it. You don't get to choose your parents. The circumstances of your birth, where you're born, whatever your ethnic heritage is, you had no say in the matter. And so Paul's purpose here, again, is to, is to help them appreciate the amazing change that has taken place through the cross of Jesus Christ and the implications of that change for life together in a local church. So he says, he picks it up again, the NASB inserts the word here, remember, but it's, it's implied. Verse 12, remember. So he's, he's back to remembering again. Remember that you were... At that time, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Paul lists five disadvantages here, five barriers. And the first four of them relate to the the lack of access that the Gentiles had to the Word of God. The first five speak about their lack of access to the Scriptures. This, by the way, is, I think, one of the reasons why it is so significant to be involved as a church in the, in the translation of the Bible into other languages. This is huge. Because to be cut off from the Word of God is to be cut off from God. It's to be cut off from God. And it is a, it is a terrible, terrible place to be. So let's take a look. We'll just tease this out a little bit. Let's look at these five theological disadvantages. The first is that they were ignorant. They were ignorant. Paul says they were separate from Christ. Now, Christ is the, is the Greek name for the Jewish Messiah. And the hope of the coming of the Messiah was, was very much woven into the, into the future hope of the nation of Israel. So, for example, back in, you know, way back to the beginning in Genesis, right? Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, where God says there, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So there is the hope of the coming deliverer. How you know about that hope is because it is, it is uh, recorded in the Jewish scriptures. Or it was Moses who wrote Genesis. And so there, is, there has been woven in since the beginning this longing, this desire for the Messiah, the one to come, the deliverer. And so thousands of, years of, thousands of years later, you get to Isaiah, for example, and Isaiah chapter 9, where we read there the prophet Isaiah Writing 9, 6, and 7, you know this because you always put it on your Christmas cards. It says, for a child will be born to us, right? A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 
There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That's a Jewish hope. Yet these Gentiles, without access to the Jewish scriptures, the very oracles of God, have no understanding of any of this. So they are unfamiliar with the prophecies of Messiah, and, that they are, and thus they are disadvantaged in that they have no ability to long for him, to look forward to him, to expect a deliverer to come, the great messianic king. So they're ignorant. Secondly, they are excluded. They are excluded. They are alienated, Paul says, from the commonwealth of Israel. That is, they are, they are not citizens of Israel. Now, Paul doesn't, doesn't assign any responsibility here. He doesn't you know, talk about why that is. He just states the fact. Gentiles were born outside of the nation of Israel. Thus, they were excluded from Israel's way of life. In other words, they were at an incredible disadvantage because being outside of the nation, they were outside of the blessings and the protections of that nation in its laws given by God to Moses, through which the nation received the blessings of God. Now, let me show you this. Deuteronomy chapter 4. It's really quite, quite profound. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Verses 5 and following. Moses says to the people here, Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 5, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? In other words, the nation of Israel, with its legal system given by God to the nation, because it was a theocracy, God as king, set them apart from all the rest of mankind and, and put them in an enviable position as they were to live under these laws. It protected them. It blessed them. And so, for the Gentile nations, we'll go back to Ephesians here, for the Gentile nations... Because they are excluded from Israel, they are outside Israel, they are thus uh, cut off from or excluded from the blessings that being a citizen of Israel produced. Third, Paul says they are unconnected. So they are ignorant, they are excluded, and they are unconnected. That is, they are strangers to the covenants of promise. So the Scriptures not only contain the direction for living as God's you know, people with his blessing, but they also contain God's covenant promises to the nation. What covenants? What does Paul have in mind here? Well, I think what he has in mind is the, is the universal, uh, unconditional promises of the Abrahamic, Davidic, and new covenants. 
And the significance of all of that is that it is through these covenants that, that the pathway to God is marked out. And so to be, to be outside the nation, to be strangers to the covenants, means that the path to God through the covenants is not available to you. You are a stranger to it all. Fourth, hopeless. Hopeless. Simply, Paul says, having no hope. Having no hope. Beloved, the result of being outside of Israel and ignorant of her scriptures is that the, the Gentiles existed in a state of hopelessness. A state of hopelessness. They had no hope of a bodily resurrection. They had no hope of the blessings of a future messianic kingdom. Now, they may not have known that they were hopeless, but that doesn't change the fact that their future was only the wrath of God. By the way, believing this to be true has moved and motivated Christian missionary endeavor against all kinds of horrific obstacles for the last 2,000 years. If we don't really, really, really believe this, then we will not send our best halfway around the world to suffer, to bring the message to a people who have never heard it. If we think somehow in the wider mercy of God, that somehow in the end, God will say, well, okay, you were sincere. And he will judge that to be all that's necessary. Then foreign missions is stupid. But Paul says, outside, outside of Christ, and the only way you know about Christ is through the Word of God. So I can say, outside of the Word of God, there is nothing but darkness and hopelessness. And that takes us to Paul's fifth statement as he sums it up he says they are godless they are godless they are without god in the world literally atheos in the greek they are atheists now that kind of causes you to sit up for a minute you think no wait a minute these people have you know they have whole pantheons full of their gods and goddesses so how they can't be atheists no actually they are atheists Why? Because they don't know, they have no relationship with the one true God, the God of Israel. And if you don't have a relationship with him, you are an atheist. You are God-forsaken. You are without God. Just thinking about all of this this past week. My ethnic background is, like many people's, it's sort of a mixed bag, but the primary strands are English and Scottish. English and Scottish. What does that mean? Well, what it means is that my ancestors were barbarians. That's what it means. My ancestors were barbarians. They were demon worshippers. They were steeped in ignorance. 
and utterly without hope. And then incredibly, in the 6th century A.D., an Irish missionary by the name of Columba went to Scotland and sowed the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that seed took root, and it began to grow. And through it, somewhere back there, my ancestors believed. The gospel came to England. The gospel came to Scotland. And those barbarians with the blue paint on their faces, who stood large rocks up and mystified the rest of the world as to how the world they ever did that, right? came to know the life-changing truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So think about your own background this morning. Think about that. Where were your ancestors spiritually? You think about your background, right? What's your ethnic heritage? How did the gospel first come to your people? And how long ago did it come? Because when you think on these things, it it can't help but make us more grateful for the gospel of Jesus Christ and more gracious towards everyone else. When we recognize that by the grace of God, right, there would be no hope. The Gentiles' former plight. Secondly, verse 13, God's decisive intervention. God's decisive intervention. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This this transformation that occurs here is is reminiscent of the startling transformation that Paul speaks about up in verse 4, right? where there he is talking about the individual transformation that that takes place through the gospel. Or in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2, he speaks of the dismal state of of the unbeliever, right? Dead in trespasses and sin, spiritually without hope, under the power of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And then verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, interceded on your behalf, if you know Christ this morning. Well, Paul picks up that same reality, and now he highlights not the, not the dramatic intervention in an individual sinner's life, but the dem- dramatic and decisive intervention of God into the world of Gentiles that were excluded from Israel and were brought near now to her God. Everything changes. But God. Those two little words, it's, it's the hinge on which... All of human history turns, but God. And what makes this intervention so dramatic is that it it occurs outside of attachment to Israel. I mean, formally, the only way a Gentile, right? If you're a Gentile this morning, and that's the majority of us, the only way we could draw near to God would be to come through Judaism, to come through the nation of Israel. To become a God-fearer, to become a, a proselyte. But, but now, in this dramatic, uh, decisive intervention of God, 
That is no longer the case. In other words, you and I did not and do not become members of Israel. Instead, we become members of a newly created community that transcends Israel. It's a community in which Jew and Gentile are members on equal footing before God. Look at verse 18. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Through him we both have our access. No temple. No ritual. No Mosaic law. No necessity of circumcision. Jew and Gentile. No priority anymore. Equal. And how did God bring us near? Right? How did God bring us near? We who were far off. Look at it. But now in Christ Jesus. That's how he brought us near. He brought us near through the sacrificial death of Christ by placing us in union with Jesus Christ. Something that God lovingly predetermined before the foundation of the world. Chapter 1, verse 4, right? That became true in space and time when we believed. That's individually how it happened. But the reality is is that the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ transformed the ages. We're Jew and Gentile, and the signification of that has not been eliminated. Has not been eliminated. But it has been reduced to a level playing field. There's no advantage now to being Jewish or Gentile. When did it all happen? Well, in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul says, In the fullness of time, right? God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. I mean, just think about what has changed. Think about it. Before, the Gentiles were separated from Christ, Paul says. But now, they are in Christ. Before, the Gentiles were excluded from Israel. But now, they are part of a community that transcends Israel. Look at verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Before, the Gentiles were unconnected to the the covenants of Israel, but now they have been made partakers of the new covenant, verse 18. Our access is in one spirit. Our access to the Father comes through the Spirit who is the, the sign of the new covenant. Before, the Gentiles were in a hopeless state. But now the blood of Christ has washed away their sin, and they share in his resurrection. Before, the Gentiles were atheists, but now they have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. Everything's changed. Absolutely everything has changed. And it has changed forever. It has changed forever. So what do we do with all this? Look around. That's not rhetorical. 
I want you to look around. Get a good look. Because you people don't move from your seats, so you only know, <laughs> each of you only know like 10 people, except for a few. A few of you are good about this. I want you to look around. We are a congregation that is drawn from many different ethnic backgrounds, aren't we? And yet here we are. We are worshiping together as one body. thinking about this this morning. I was going to try to make a list. And I thought, oh boy, that'll get me in trouble. I'll leave somebody out and then I'll get a letter. <laughs> right? Well, you trying to say I'm not part of it? <laughs> Don't you know who I am? So I was just going with the look around approach. I mean, we are very diverse. Very diverse. But what's the point? The point is, is that this community of believers is a very powerful testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we see each other, and, and, and there are differences. That are, there are obviously differences that are immediately you know, noticeable on the surface, and there are many deep di- uh, differences. But the, but the, the gospel has transcended that. And that is incredibly powerful. Incredibly powerful. May God help us not to tarnish his testimony through this body. We are one in the Spirit. If you are a child of God this morning, if you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're trusting in him and his death and resurrection alone, then you are a child of God and we're part of a body of believers here. So God help us in all of those silly preferences and silly things that I talked about at the beginning, right, that divide us or potentially could divide us. God help us if we allow that to happen. It is very, very, very important to understand the oneness of the body of Christ theologically and then to live it out experientially. May we know God's grace in that. Let's pray. Our Father... Each of us has our own testimony of of what Christ has done. The particulars, the details of how he made himself known to us and ripped the scales from our eyes and enlivened our hearts, the truth of the gospel. We now have been baptized into one body, the body of Christ, and it's the amazing truth of how that supersedes everything else. 
And yet, Lord, in a moment, in, a, in an unguarded moment, in a fit of personal passion or irritation or self-absorption, we can discard that wonderful truth and we can act in a way that contradicts it. Elevate ourselves and our own preferences. Oh, Lord, help us. I am so grateful, Father, for, for the peace that you've given us here, and it has been peaceful. We've not been without problems, to be sure, but, but we've had two decades of peace. Father, you have spared us in so many ways. It's not because of our wisdom or our righteousness or our intelligence or our godliness. Father, we have to attribute it to your grace. Oh Lord, how important it is for Foothill to be living out the truth of who we are in Christ. I just think about our, our missionary endeavors and how these men and women, some of whom are in very difficult places, and how reliant they are upon the church back here in the States to be solid. How often churches start squabbling about the f- most foolish of things and, and end up blowing themselves up and destroying gospel work around the world. Oh Lord, humble us. Humble our hearts. Let us have the attitude of Christ who did not consider his equality with you a thing to be grasped, but willingly emptied himself by taking to himself the form of a bondservant. Oh Lord, help us to emulate our Savior. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen and amen.